0: The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, meet talking book narrator Joe Wilson and learn why the American Council of the Blind has been in the news lately. Welcome to ACB Reports for July 2016. Just as hundreds of members of the American Council of the Blind were beginning to pack their bags for the organization's 55th annual conference and convention, ACB was making headlines on two legal fronts. Here are two stories, both from WUSA 9 in Washington, D.C., that highlight critical advocacy efforts of ACB. Civil Rights Group pushes U.S. Treasury for blind-friendly currency. A civil rights group has filed a motion in court to get the Department of Treasury to start printing money that is easier for blind people to handle. In 2008, a court ordered the department to begin printing denominations of money that blind or visually impaired people could decipher by touch. The American Council of the Blind was behind this effort. But that same organization was recently disappointed when it learned the government would not be able to print money for the blind until the year 2026. ACB expected the Treasury Department to begin printing a friendlier ten-dollar bill by the year 2020. The group also said the department told them counterfeiting concerns delayed the production of those new bills. This government could put a person on the moon within a decade, said ACB member Paul Diderio. It's going to be near two decades, at least, before we'll have tactile currency. It does boggle the mind," End quote. According to the American Council of the Blind, the group's motion will look to speed up the department's efforts to provide tactile money to the general public. Money could feature raised symbols on the corners or even larger numbers and letters, the group said. WUSA 9 reached out to the Department of the Treasury It is still waiting for comment. Several DC taxi companies agree to new guidelines. Four DC taxi cab companies have agreed to new guidelines on how they will treat blind customers with service dogs. The move comes after a 2013 WUSA 9 investigation discovered multiple cabs around Washington DC ignoring visually impaired customers. According to the American Council of the Blind, the Elite Cab Association, Grand Cab Company, Yellow Cab Company of D.C., and Pleasant Taxi Club LLC are all a part of the settlement. Eric Bridges, the executive director of the American Council of the Blind, said the companies agreed to develop non-discrimination policies for their drivers. The ACB said most of those companies' drivers will now be required to stop for customers who also have a dog. The policy will make it so a visually impaired customer cannot be passed up by a taxi driver who may assume their dog is not a service animal. Individuals who are blind and who utilize service animals have as much a right to utilize the taxis because they are a public accommodation as anyone else, Bridges said. The ACB will eventually help monitor drivers in the field to make sure they are complying with the new guidelines. The changes come at a time when the D.C. Taxicab Commission is providing disability sensitivity training to taxi drivers and for-hire vehicles. A DCTC spokesperson told WUSA 9 the commission recently received recommendations from the American Council of the Blind in regard to its rulemaking process. We strongly support improvement to accessible transportation and welcome suggestions from passengers, drivers, companies, and disability rights advocates to raise the bar, said DCTC spokesperson Neville Waters. Again, both of these articles were from WUSA 9 in Washington, D.C.
1: From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports.
0: A highlight of the annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind is the opportunity to hear from and meet a talking book narrator. Last year, that narrator was Joe Wilson from Talking Book Publishers of Denver, Colorado. Mr. Wilson was introduced by ACB Secretary
2: Ray Campbell. This is a part of the program that I know we all look forward to because we get to hear from a person that is a big part of all of our lives. They travel with us throughout our homes as we traverse to our jobs or whatever we do, maybe on paratransit or other means. Sometimes they're even in our bedrooms. Well, this morning we have the opportunity to present and I'm a little concerned about this, although I shouldn't be in Texas. The title of this says, The Making of a Gunslinging Narrator. Now, with all the concealed carry-around now, I don't know about this, but here we go. Joe Wilson is going to be our narrator this morning. He works for talking book publishers in Denver, Colorado. Besides narrating, he is an actor, an educator, and a small business person. Mr. Wilson, when he's not narrating great books for us does training for crisis intervention for police in dealing with folks who are mentally challenged. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to bring to the microphone our narrator for this year, Joe Wilson.
1: It's a very humbling honor to stand here before you today. And it is such a pleasure to meet the people for whom we do the work, for whom we sit in those those dark booths for hours on end reading these books. Sometimes we lose track of the fact that there are you folks out there listening to what we do. When we have 44 hours of the zombie apocalypse... It's nice to know that, uh, that we have people out there for whom this is important stuff, <laughs> or not. <laughs> I've been with Talking Books now for seven years. I started as a monitor. A monitor is a first-line engineer who stands on the other side of the glass and listens to the narrator prattle on. The monitor has a copy of the book as well, and he or she follows along with the narrator and makes sure that we get all the words right, and that we say all the words correctly. Before I started working with Talking Books, and by extension, the NLS, I had no idea of the importance of the difference between Louisville and Louisville. And Louisville. Louisville. I was born and bred in Virginia. I'm a proud son of the Old Dominion. I moved to Boulder, Colorado in the mid-70s, stayed there until the early 80s, and uh, that certainly uh, colored my experiences. Once I left uh, Boulder, I went immediately into rehab. Uh, (laughs) It was then that I moved back to Virginia to care for an aged parent and got into radio and theater. And it's from there that I eventually got into narration with talking books. It's interesting, I spent 12 years in radio as a country music DJ. And if in those books that you hear me narrate, I demonstrate a
2: familiarity with heavy drinking
1: <laughs> and fast cars and loose women. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Ray. Those are not the same people. <laughs> yes, these are all separate subjects you understand. <laughs> then you can either blame or thank twelve years in country music, radio. Yeah. I was brought into talking books in two thousand seven by Martha Harmon Cardave's name Woo! <laughs> Incidentally, Martha said, "Don't worry about prepared notes. Just get up there and talk, Joe." So, if any of this sounds disjointed or I start going off on tangents, blame Martha. <laughs> It's interesting, though, the habits and the skills and the tools that I developed in stage work and radio work have very little transference to audio narration. It took me years to develop a microphone presence, uh, working the mic, avoiding pushing too much, Avoiding sounding like in the middle of Emily Dickinson, you want to break into time and temperature and a traffic report. <laughs> because the library doesn't like that. <laughs> and, and we like the library. The crisis intervention training that we do, um, which is how I met Martha, which is how I got involved in this stuff, we portray in improv situations. Um, mentally challenged individuals in live, hands-on interactions with police officers in an effort to give them a better understanding of that population so that their first response is not to pull a gun or a taser or a set of handcuffs. It's another one of those populations with whom authority figures sometimes don't know how to react. Anyway, that's how I got involved with Martha, and she brought me into uh, Talking Books, where I spent years and years reading the magazines. Uh, Asimov's, Analog. Uh, The first pleasure reading I did as a child was science fiction. Not everyone in the studio has as deep an appreciation of science fiction and fantasy, as some of us do. Atlantic Monthly, um, True West, I loved reading True West. And that's what led into uh, a lot of the action genre that I sort of do a lot of these days. And QST, do we have any hams in the audience? Good, 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 good. Um, I have been told, correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't matter how I pronounce your name, Ray, as long as I get your call sign
2: right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay.
1: Jake Williams, the name some of you probably remember, uh, retired about a year ago and I was fortunate enough to take over QST. And QST is another one of those magazines that a lot of people in the studio don't like to read because it's names and numbers and letters and scores and DX competitions and all like that. And quite frankly, I love reading QST because I can tell the passion that the hams have for it, and um, I just love being a part of that. One of the challenges in this sort of work, we always run the balance of how much of our own personalities to put into the books, and how much we should just let the author's words do their own work. When we do character voices, for instance, it's it's always a challenge to try to figure out: do we go over the top when I'm doing the female voice? Do I have to do a full set? Up? That's kind of painful for me. Um, but it's a, it's a fine balance that we run between imposing our own interpretation of the book and just laying it out there for your ears and letting you make your own decision. Because we are under no illusion that we know everything about what the author intended. The library sends us boxes, big boxes of books. And it's always exciting when they come in. Our studio manager, Heidi Klub, um picks out the books, and there are some books that are first-person male, first-person feminine. Those are obvious, although we have more feminine readers than we do masculine readers at this point. And then the books are broken up into types. Who does what best? Jim Zeiger reads all our poetry. Bill Wallace reads most of our nonfiction. Kristen Wallace reads all our vampires, zombies having sex in outer space. <laughs> Gabriella Cavallaro with her marvelous facility with foreign languages. It tends to read those books with Latin or with a lot of French or with a lot of Italian. God bless her, she can have it. <laughs> I tend to get the books that have guns and explosions and blood and guts and zombies. And, you know, you can ask anybody that knows me, I'm just a pussycat, I'm a swell guy. But, uh, there's something about the way my voice comes across, the way I present myself, and because it's one of these voices. I tend to get a lot of zombie apocalypse, uh, a lot of westerns, the, the William Johnstone series of westerns, oh, okay, good, 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 and um, a lot of shoot-em-ups, maybe it's because I know what a Browning 50 cal is, and I can pronounce Colt 45, <laughs> and those are fun, those are fun books, they're not Shakespeare. I like Shakespeare, I've done Shakespeare. I can't imagine reading Shakespeare as, a, as an NLS book. But, um, boy, Sky Masterson galloping across the prairie, you know, through Monument Valley. It's fun stuff to read. I also get a lot of genre books set in the South. I always thought that I got to the South out of my voice, but obviously I have once the book is, is assigned, they actually call it casting, once a book is cast, then the book will be assigned to someone who reads it, scans it rather, literally looking for tricky words, long words, foreign words, words they think that we narrators may not be aware of, the highlighters. And it's always a battle because the narrators will say, The highlighter assumed I didn't know how to say grandiose. What do they think I am, stupid? (laughs) And on the other hand, sometimes they'll miss words, and then we have to stop, look it up, all of our pronunciations. 99% of them come from Random House, that's the standard reference. And the library will send the book back for redoing, if we mispronounce, a word. Uh So we have to be pretty careful for that. It goes through a highlighter who looks for the difficult words, literally highlights them. Then it goes to research. They look up the words, and we've just got a room full of reference materials. Um, Then their information is turned into a, a pronouncer, what we call a pronouncer, which is a series of pages that we put up next to our book, and as we read, we come across a highlighted word. And our eyes have to shift over to the right. With a little bit of luck and some experience, you can continue your narration while you cut your eyes to the side and get the pronunciation of the word in diacriticals. Generally... It's about a two-to-one ratio of time spent producing the book to finished minutes. So at the end of the book, or I guess it's at the beginning, isn't it? Approximate reading time of this book is 23 hours, 17 minutes. You've heard that before, have you? (laughs) You can assume that somebody spent on a 23-hour book, 46 hours, in a dark room, with a spotlight over their shoulder, reading. Um, it's so exciting. It's, it's, it's just glamour. Um, and then after that, it goes through two levels of, of quality control. We have somebody that listens to it on double speed. These people are just nuts. I don't know what kind of drugs they do. <laughs> Their job is to listen to us at double speed And they are able to pick up content and meaning and context at double speed when my voice says like this. (laughs) And I don't know how they do it, but God bless them, they do. After that, it goes through another QC person who listens to it again at regular speed. The object being to send a clean copy to the National Library Service in Washington. Um, And then the books get digitally uploaded and sent out to you folks. Where was I? I think I was talking about the fact that I get a lot of genre books, um, a lot of guns, a lot of action. And it took me a long time before I even got to that. I was in magazines for a long time. And I don't want to give you the impression that magazines are thought of any less at talking book publishers. They come through every month, obviously, or quarterly, and they can be a bit of a grind. We crank them out, you know, with Analog and Asimov. Um, Those of you who read a lot of science fiction probably are aware of a guy named Theodore Sturgeon, uh, an author of, of great standing. And somebody asked Theodore one time about a new movement developing in the 60s or 70s about science fiction. I said, well, Ted, don't you think 90% of this stuff is crap? And Ted Sturgeon's response was, well, my friend, 90% of everything is crap. And that's come to be known as Sturgeon's Law. Exactly. Thank you, my friend. We can't take it like that. We have to give every book and every magazine its due faith and diligence. And bring it to you folks as best we can. Um, It took a long time before I made it to books. Um, One function of that is that we have an extremely slow turnover in narrators at talking books. And I imagine that's true at other studios as well. Uh, It's a good job. It's a fun job. We get to sit and read out loud and tell stories. And as I get older, I I don't like to memorize lines as much as I used to. So this is easier than trying to memorize a play. I was asked to select a reading. A lot of the stuff we do comes, we like to say, it comes in our eyes, out our mouth, and then it's just gone. When you read for a living 40 hours a week... You don't retain a lot of it. Sometimes I don't know what the book's about while I'm reading it. (laughs) Literally. I have to stop and ask my monitor, wait a minute, who is Billy Bob and why is he so angry? (laughs) Or, wait a minute, Stella, Stella, what does Stella's voice sound like again? Can we go back to chapter one and listen to that? In an effort to try to keep voices constant. Every once in a while, I come across a book that sticks with me. In seven years, I have had one author with whom I desperately wanted to get in contact with. Just to say, thank you for writing this. It was such a pleasure. It was like candy on my tongue. The guy's name is Ron Rash. The book is a collection of short stories called something rich and strange and it's all set in the Appalachians or as the NLS says, the Appalachians it's a collection of short stories all generally having to do with loss of one sort or another, but it's not sad, it's about how people handle loss stretching from the um, Civil War to the present day um, stories of struggle, of strength, of loss, and recovery, and also some things that I just think are marvelously witty. So this is a section from a short story of Ron Rash's in a collection entitled "Something Rich and Strange." The title at least is appropriate for our time and place. It's called "Love and Pain in the New South. Darlene walks through the open sliding door, dragging two trees worth of divorce papers. Lord, she is beautiful. Even as she harps on me about keeping the door open while the air conditioner is running in the other room. Darlene and her lawyer are setting me up where I won't have an extra dime for the next 500 years. (laughs) And she's telling me I need to watch my power bill. I follow her into the den, wishing I had a pair of blinders like they put on mules. Seeing her again after two months is killing me. It's like trying to give up smoking and someone putting a lighted cigarette in your hand. I look out the window and see Carl Blomeyer in his backyard, barbecuing what looks like a large dog. (laughs) And staring this way. Blowmeyer is one of the many northern retirees who have moved down here to live cheaper and to educate southerners about how to drive on snow. <laughs> the one or two times each year the white stuff falls, Blomeyer stands on Main Street with a Mr. Microphone and tells drivers what they're doing wrong. Blomire's grass is cut shorter than most golf greens. He crawls around his yard on hands and knees to find wild onions and crabgrass. Now Blomire is stretching his neck to see over the hedge, wanting to watch every minute of the soap opera next door. His shorter, grub-white wife stands on a lawn chair. (laughs) They love my pain. Darlene pushes empty Dos Equis bottles to the edge of the coffee table right. so she can spread out the divorce papers. She looks at the bottles and shakes her head. Darlene's never had a drink in her life. And she used to punish me for my weakness by buying the cheapest beer she could find.
2: <laughs>
1: that beer is $6 a six-pack, she says. I bought it to help out the Mexicans, I say. They're in bad shape down there. Read and sign, she says. Stanley's expecting me back at nine. I read. She will get the house, the car, and most of the 5000 in the bank. As far as I can tell, I get the pickup and all the food in the refrigerator. I finish reading, but I don't look up. I'm thinking about the day we got married and how she looked right into my eyes and swore all that stuff about for better or for worse and for richer or for poorer. And now all those words, all those promises have come to this. I loved you, I say. I think I might still. I didn't mean to kill the monkey. And it goes on. (laughs) I would like to thank you so much for having me down here for the convention. Because if it wasn't for you, well, number one, I wouldn't have a job. Um, (laughs) But I wouldn't be exposed to the literature that I have and the opportunity to do what I feel is a very important job. Thank you.
0: That was Joe Wilson, recorded during the 54th Annual Conference and Convention of the American Council of the Blind, which was held in Dallas, Texas in July 2015. ACB Link version 1.1 is now available through the App Store. The newly updated app offers the following improvements. A revamped radio tab providing a much more understandable and user-friendly interface enhanced streaming capability of ACB radio podcast feeds. All convention sponsors now have a place inside the app. Links are provided, directing users of ACB Link to the websites of these valued sponsors. A much cleaner and usable visual appearance for the low vision community. Many bug fixes and other user refinements have been made throughout the application. The updated ACB Link, version 1.1, is ready for your favorite iDevice. Get it now and you won't miss any of the action of the 55th Annual Conference and Convention of the American Council of the Blind. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide, on side 4 of the Braille Forum Cassette Edition, and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.